0: An ancient queen who got stuck in against the Roman Empire in the 3rd century, carving out an empire of her own as the Empress of Palmyra. Um, After coming to power in 267 CE, she campaigned and conquered against the Romans to the west and the Persians to the east, ending up with an empire that spanned from Egypt to Turkey and even rivaled bloody Rome itself. She was not mucking around, I'll tell you that. Obviously, going up uh, you know, against the mightiest empire in the world is, is no joke. And Zenobia, she didn't muck around on the battlefield. she conquering the pants off the Roman territories, left, right, and center. And on top of this, she's also an incredibly forward-thinking and progressive monarch who, generally speaking, had her head screwed on pretty well. She was into science and learning and was pretty tolerant of religious and cultural differences throughout her, her empire there. So uh, all in all, Zenobia was an absolute pistol of an empress and, uh, and played a huge role in what's known today as the crisis of the third century, which uh, was was a series of political and, and military crises. Crises uh, within uh, the Roman Empire, and uh, that, that nearly caused its collapse. Nearly caused the collapse of the entire bloody thing, actually. Anyway, let's get stuck in and have a chat about Zenobia and what she got up to. Of course, going back, uh, well, actually, eh, not hundred percent sure how far we go back here. To be honest, uh, I think Marvel Comics must have had a hand in Zenobia's origin story here because it is very vague and it's also very self-contradictory. So, uh, uh, a lot of this is because of the uh, the information we have uh, about Zenobia it comes from a series of documents known as the Augustan History, which is known to be pretty bloody sketchy at times. Uh, And as a result, our best guesses about Zenobia's origins are always, always going to be a little questionable but we can have a go anyway. Uh, just bear in mind that all this stuff might not be completely accurate. It's, it's just sort of the best that we can do. So she's born on or around 240 CE to parents that we don't know much about in, in Palmyra. Uh, she seems to be of noble birth and uh, seems to have been well-educated as a kid as she learns a bunch of languages. She can speak Aramaic, Egyptian, Greek, and uh, and Latin. And uh, she, she also may have liked to hunt and to wrestle as a kid, but this is a little more doubtful than, than some of the other stuff because a fair bit of retrospective meddling was done to poor old Zenobia biobiographers. So a lot of the stuff that we know about early life is, is well and truly in best guess territory. They were kind of modifying the facts to, to suit whatever narrative they were pushing at the time. A lot of the Augustan history uh, served a, as a critique or a commentary on, on a lot of the Roman emperors at the time and so as a result they tried to paint the Emperor's uh, enemies, in which case, obviously, Zenobia is going to be one of them, as either very strong or very weak or very anything, depending on what they were trying to say about the Emperor. So not 100%, uh, not 100% sort of reliable here, but our best guess is, you know, most of this stuff, it, it might be true or might not be, but, you know, it's our best guess. Anyway, wrestling or no? Uh, Zenobia was uh, probably part of a wealthy or influential Palmyran family and had a decent enough upbringing. So uh, at around the age of 14 and 255, uh, she actually becomes the second wife of the Lord of Palmyra, a bloke named Odonathus. Um, she doesn't get up to too much as queen consort, but I tell you what, Odinathus does. He doesn't muck around at all. Nominally, he's loyal to Rome as the leader of, of the powerful province uh, of the Roman Empire, leader of Palmyra. Uh, but he has other pots on the boil here, I'll tell you this. This is because all of this is happening. All your pa- Odinathus is, is, is ruling Palmyra at a time when the Roman Empire is in deep poop. It's, uh, it's actually kind of falling apart at the seams with rebellions, insurgencies, invasions and all sorts of stuff going on. Its borders are constantly under attack. Its economy is in the toilet and a bunch of internal issues are plaguing its central administration. So it's not a very good time uh, to be betting on the Roman Emperor, Empire at this stage. Uh, this chaos, it peaks in, in in the year 260 when Emperor Valerian uh, was captured by the Persians. Uh, as a result of this, rebels in Gaul, modern day France, as fans of Astra. Will uh, will no doubt be aware they split off and they create their own empire and generally speaking it was a very good time to be chucking punches Romewards and uh, just like Gaul Odenathus's uh, Palmyra is the next area to rise up against its Roman oppressors although calling them oppressors gets us into a sort of life of Brian type situation here. What have what the Romans ever done for Palmyra? Not much, apart from better sanitation and medicine and education and irrigation and public health and roads and a fresh water system and baths and public order. But uh, yeah, in fairness, look, the Rome, being part of the Roman Empire had been pretty good for, for Palmyra over the years, but uh, that all ends now because up until this point, Palmyra had been a province of the Roman Empire, enjoying a, enjoying a, a, a prosperous position in the empire's hi- hierarchy with a fair bit of autonomy, a fair bit of regional autonomy going on there. Uh, Palmyra is situated towards the eastern edge of the empire in modern-day Syria uh, and its capital, which was also called Palmyra. It's just over 200 kilometres northeast of Damascus. Uh, and it was a very important trading city. All the caravans that went to and from Asia to the east came through it, and the city itself, very modern, very luxurious, monuments, temples, theatres, baths, towers, whatever else, but the thing is, with the Roman Empire crumbling and Palmyra being, you know, remain, being and remaining relatively prosperous, it's little wonder that they ultimately decide to turn around and rebel against the Romans. Although it was definitely a case of a softly, softly, catchy monkey here, because Odinathus is going around blowing on behalf of the Roman Roman Empire. This is what he says, right? He's, he's 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 been sneaky about it. He's going around bashing up Persians and other scrappy rebels here and there. All as he says, you know as he says, on behalf of the Roman Empire, on behalf of the people that he's paying lip service to as still being the leaders, the, the rulers of Palmyra. He's doing a great job of things. And the Romans uh, back out west, they kind of have to recognise this. The last thing they want is a full-scale Palmyrene uh, uprising. So they actually cave to Odonathus and they give him a fancy new title, Corrector Totius Orientus, or uh, in other words, well, in English words specifically, Governor of the entire East. So not bad, old son, but it means that Palmyra is still at least nominally part of the Roman Empire, despite Odonathus having expanded its autonomy very significantly by going and fighting all these battles against uh, uh, Persians and, and, and whoever else like this. There's a fair bit of evidence to suggest that old mate Odonathus was going to try to secure Palmyrene independence, but he never actually got the chance. And that's because in the grand tradition of ambitious rulers, everywhere throughout history, he gets assassinated. That's the way that it goes for him. Unfortunately, his goose gets cooked in two sixty seven, when Zenobia is in her late twenties. Odinathus and his eldest son have been fighting Goths in in Cappadocia, which is in modern day Turkey. They've hardly had the chance to, you know, wipe all the blood and the black eyeliner off their swords. They've still got the ringing sound of the Goth battle cries and evanescence in their ears. Um, We actually don't know 100% where they were assassinated. It was either off in Anatolia or it was at home in Palmyra. And we actually don't know 100% why either. There's talk of it being a cousin of Odonathus or a nephew. Uh, The the story about the nephew is interesting. Uh, Apparently, the nephew was on a lion hunt with Odinathus, and he pissed Odinathus off by uh, going and, and starting to uh, like pose and butcher the lion, which was a great insult to this, you know, this king of the king of the east like that. And 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 he, I think uh, Odinathus ended up locking him up. And then when the when the nephew came out, apparently he assassinated uh, Odonathus, which is a little bit of an ex- a little bit of an overreaction, I would say, assassinating you know your, your uncle for for you know whacking you over the wrist after having you know ruined his his, his lion hunting trip. Anyway. It, we're, not, we're not sure if it was the cousin or a nephew or, or just some other bloke. Um, there's another theory that it was another bloke named Odonathus. Uh, maybe he just didn't... It was, this was like a Highlander-type situation. He, he didn't want another bloke with the same name as him. But my favourite, my favourite record, a lot of, lot of very ridiculous stories that come out of this. And again, this is all because of the, you know, very, very contradictory stories we have of, of, from historians at the time. But one of my favourite stories... Well, Actually, I'll just, I'll just go out there. I'll, you know, I'll go out and leave. My favourite story about the assassination of Odonathus was apparently comes from a bloke named Zosimus, uh, who said that he got assassinated at a friend's birthday party, which I really like. Just imagine all these ancient uh, Palmarine warriors, blood-soaked, battle-hardened, all wearing party hats and blowing out candles before an assassin leaps out of the cakes and off, off's poor old Od- Odinathus, you know, splattering blood all over the fairy bread. Anyway, in any case, for whatever reason, Odinathus he's as dead as a doornail. Uh, not that doornails are Really known for their vitality, anyway. But but Zenobia, she quickly trims her sails to the winds of change. Uh, Odonathus, on top of all the promotions and the titles that he's been getting from the Romans back out west, he had started calling himself the King of Kings. This means that as the first monarch, a lot of Odonathus's power came from personal loyalties. The first monarch in this sort of dynasty he's trying to establish. And this is very shaky. This means that a succession of power would be much easier to disrupt than, say, you know, a line of monarchs that had stretched out through the centuries. So, Zenobia realises very quickly that if she wants to get on the front foot here and try to get her son, Valabathus, who was obviously the son of, uh, of Odonathus as well, uh, a- a- with with a crown on his head, she's going to have to act very, very quickly. So, She says, bugger this for a joke. No one's going to nick the crown off my son. No one's messing with the line of succession. My boy Valabas is next in line. Chuck us that crown and I'll whack it on his noggin. And somewhat surprisingly, you might think, given the potential for a coup or a seizure of power by whoever... It works. Zenobia oversees a brisk and effective transfer of power to her kid, Vallabathus. And here's the thing. Valabathus really is just a kid. He's only 10 years old. And he's a good little boy. He's a good young chap. He does exactly what mum tells him to do, which in this case is sit there quietly, quietly while she gets on with the business of ruling Palmyra as the queen regent. Valabathus inherits all of his dad's Palmyrene titles, and Zenobia uses them to wield power over all of Palmyra, sort of by proxy, by you know, by by as a regent, which is what you would expect in situations like this. What you wouldn't expect, however, is for issues to arise with his Roman titles, because all of Odinathus's Roman titles, like the Corrector Totius Orentus, are not hereditary. So this is where some real issues start cropping up with the Romans. The Romans had to play nice with Odonathus due to their internal issues and the fact that he was kicking goals with both feet, but now they sniff out a chance to re-establish their control over the Palmyrene region. Zenobia, however, is having absolutely none of it. She says, she goes to Emperor Gallienus and says, stick it up, right up your imperial ass, my friend. Mind your own P's and Q's because my son's the king. My son's still got all these Roman titles. What are you going to do about it? Now, Gallienus, he is Very able to talk the talk here, but unable completely to walk the walk. So he backs down and accepts Zenobia, uh, who continues to use these Roman titles to back up her sons, technically, but basically her leadership as the Queen Regent of Palmyra and she is off like a greyhound. She successfully forced Rome to withdraw its sizable nose from her affairs, and she gets on with the business of running an emerging empire. And this seems to have gone incredibly smoothly as well. There is no record of her having any rebellion or unrest or grief over her rule, so she's off to the races. She's having a great time. Although this may also have been because she rounded up and executed everyone who had a hand in her husband's assassination, just to sort of clear up what might happen to anyone to oppose her. So maybe people weren't, you know, too keen to jump up and start uh, criticising their new queen, given that, uh, you know, she dealt with her husband's uh, assassins pretty bloody ruthlessly. Anyway, after securing the support of all the leaders beneath her, who, remember, are technically supposed to be loyal to Rome, she gets stuck in with pushing Palmyra towards independence. Now, she does this, again, very quietly, very slowly, and very cleverly. Uh, because her first move is to shore up her eastern borders with Persia you'll remember Odonathus had been scrapping with the Persians a fair bit and uh, and 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 she's very ready to do this as well uh, she she beefs up the defenses of all the towns and villages along the Euphrates River and she also goes about crushing all the rebel scum within her own borders namely the Tanakids, who have been giving her a lot of uh, a lot of grief now on top of this boring sort of real politic nonsense she's also doing a lot of good PR work internally to get people on board with what she was up to remember this is a young monarch this is only only Odonathus is calling himself a king. And she's basically the second ruler in this line. And she's standing up to Rome at a very, very good time to do this. But it's still a tenuous position to be in politically. So she's done a lot of groundwork here, very cleverly, to try to get herself in a good position politically. She had a, uh, so Palmyra is an empire that is composed of a bunch of different cultural and ethnic groups. And Zenobia very cleverly tried to paint herself as transcending a lot of the group's borders. Broadly speaking, there were Semitic and Hellenistic people, or in other words, there were the Arabs and the Greeks. And Zenobia, she painted herself as belonging to both groups, as well as harnessing the image of being a Roman empress to really sort of give this great impression of of, of sort of effortless power. And people bloody loved this. They bloody loved it. She did a bang up job of getting people behind her because again, she had this broad appeal to all of her citizens. She's also big into culture, philosophy and learning. She invites all of these philosophers and stuff over from Athens and the like. And she turns the city of Palmyra into a very important place for classical learning, you've got philosophers leaving Athens to go to Palmyra, which is a big deal back then. She also practices very extreme religious tolerance. She accepts Christians and Jews and pagans, followers of Semitic gods, all sorts really are just all, all are welcome in this very broad church that she opens. And this was a very po- clever political move too, as it encouraged anyone who was pissed off with being marginalised or oppressed by the Romans to head over to Palmyra and support her instead. So she's got a, she's got a fair bit of grace, grey matter between the old ear holes there, does uh, does Zenobia, and she does a very good job of not only shoring up her position militarily, but also in the hearts and minds of her people from a political standpoint. So she's done a great job here. Anyway. After a couple of years of establishing her rule, which seemed to go pretty bloody swimmingly, we have to say, she decides that enough is enough and now it's time to get on the front foot and start swishing the willow about in a major way. Remember... Rome is still in a really bad spot with internal rebellion and border skirmishes with the Goths who are hell-bent on wiping those Roman poses off the face of the ancient world. Uh, And this means that Zenobia, as the leader of a very, very powerful nation or province or or territory, region, whatever you want to call it at at this stage, is in a terrific position to charge down the pitch and start swinging for the fences while the Romans have their hands full up until this point she's paid a very sensible level of lip service to the roman officially accepting their rule over her lands while never really letting them do anything of any significance so while she would say to them yeah yeah sure whatever we're part of the roman empire she's really the one that you know is pulling all the strings and making all the meaningful decisions however this changes in 269. She's had enough of boring diplomacy and she gears up for war. As I mentioned, a lot of her, her subordinates were to, were torn between loyalty to Rome and loyalty to her and Palmyra. And so she decides to answer the question once and for all and kicks off her campaign of expansion and conquest. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices So, in 269, while Emperor Claudius Gothicus was off scrapping with the Goths, Zenobia starts forcefully annexing the more Roman-aligned city-states and provinces around Palmyra. This was a good bit of timing from old Zenobia as the Roman Empire was crumbling from within while also trying to deal with these external threats, meaning that it really wasn't in a position to, to respond to the personal annexation of its outer provinces. And by bringing these territories under her personal control, Zenobia also locked up a fair bit of cash for herself. She could now directly benefit from the trade and the stuff like that was, that was going All the economic activity was now landing in her coffers instead of, uh, instead of going back to the Romans. So it's a great spot for her to be in. The other thing that this expansion did was send a very clear message to Rome that Palmyra was a very real regional power and, de- and, de- and deserved a and demanded respect. Thank you very much. Watch your stop- step there, Claudius' old son. I'll be coming for you Next. This continues from 269 into 270 when Zenobia now steps up the attack. Previously, she'd been annexing local territories that she might have been able to lay claim to as the ruler of Palmyra, but she is done with these small fish before too long. After securing the the concrete support of all of her regional uh, regional subordinates in 270, she marches her armies towards the Roman province of Arabia Petraea. She has no business being there, but she is she's getting stuck in nonetheless, and there Her general, Zabdas, attacks and routs the army of the Roman governor, Trassus, sacking his capital, Bosra. Uh, Zabdas then continues on south on Zenobia's orders, cutting a mighty swath of destruction through Arabia and Judea. And the interesting thing here is this. All throughout this entire campaign, this conquest here, on the surface... Zenobia is still giving herself plausible deniability when it comes to loyalty to the Roman Empire. She's claimed a bunch of titles in her son's name, all done to represent herself as a loyal subject of the empire, and she's just fighting to secure the eastern provinces in this time of great internal strife, isn't she? She's certainly not building up a, a regional power base that will be able to rival Rome by bringing in great expanse of land and people under personal control? No, 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 no. Why would you think that? In any case, she's doing a bang-up job of conquering the hell out of the region surrounding Syria, but still, she's not finished there. In the back half of 270, she turns her eyes towards Egypt and orders Zabdas to mount, march south quick smart. Very simple reason for this. The agriculture and the farming in Egypt It was basically the breadbasket of Rome uh, with grain shipments being sent across the Mediterranean very regularly and she wanted a slice of that pie. She wanted to control all of these food stocks and the enormous wealth that flowed down the Nile every harvest season and as a result, Egypt is a very juicy target indeed. Things are looking very good for Zenobia at this stage. Rome has been thrown into further disarray with the death of Claudius, the emperor. He's been off fighting desperately to reunite the emperor out, empire out west, campaigning against the breakaway Gallic Empire but uh, died of, of what we Think was probably smallpox this year in 270. His brother and successor Quintillus was a bit useless, not much liked by the Roman legions, and so Zenobia really picked a good time. She's in a great spot here to crack some more Roman skulls down in Egypt while the uh, while the you know internal politics of the Roman Empire are consuming all of their attention. So. Sometime around October, a massive army of 70,000 Palmarines march into Egypt, and once again, it is all coming up Zenobia. Firstly, the prefect of Egypt, a respected military leader whose name was Tenagino Probus, was off scrapping with pirates, and so he wasn't around to defend his turf. Secondly, a fair few people in Egypt were actually big fans of Zenobia. They've heard of the stuff that she did. They've heard of the st- you know what she's been up to, both uh, culturally, uh, religiously, politically, all that sort of stuff, and they're on board with her already, even, even though she's... She's technically leading an invading army. They're like, mate, come in, please. Lay out, lay out the red carpet for her like that. Thirdly, she's got a man on the inside. One of these blokes who's, in, who's a big fan of her, these Egyptians, who's a big fan of her, is an Egyptian general named Timagenes, who greatly aided the 70,000-strong Palmarine army uh, in overcoming the 50,000-strong Roman army as they first met on the field of battle in Alexandria. So, with the Egyptian capital secured, Zabdas gets ready to head back to Palmyra, leaving behind 5,000 troops there as a garrison. But what's this? Oh, no. Old mate Tenergino, the Roman prefect, he gets back from his pirate hunting trip, and he is bloody spitting chips that his backyard has been conquered while he was out. He gets his troops back together, and he reconquers Alexandria. But as soon as Zabdas hears this, he stops in his tracks historians haven't confirmed that this happened with a humorous screeching noise like in a cartoon but well you know probably did and marches right back into egypt and there zabdas rolls into alexandria and re-reconquers it no worries at all mate the alexandria at this stage probably just going, gee bloody hell you idiots make up your minds are we roman or palmarine come on just get it over with and tinagino he flees to the south from alexandria but this is where Timagines once again proved his worth. He knew he he had sort of got a suspicion as to what Tinagino would get up to next, and as a result, he is able to uh, to to lay an ambush and and springs a trap after anticipating the Roman's next move. Zabdus and Timajanes roundly defeat Tinogino once and for all at the Babylon fortress, and that was that. Palmyra had captured Egypt good and proper and was ready to benefit from the enormous amount of wealth and prosperity that that, that that country or that province, I guess, at this stage enjoyed. So... Still, Zenobia is not finished. She continues with some other campaigns into Asia Minor, but unfortunately, we don't have too much information about these. They weren't written about extensively. But what we do know, however, is that in the year 271, Palmyra was at its peak. It was a fully independent, fully autonomous empire spanning all the way from Egypt to modern day Turkey. And it had all been built on the achievements of Zenobia. And of course, Odonathus you know, put in a lot of legwork to begin with, but Zenobia was the one who was out there on the front lines, kicking goals and getting it done. So good on her. Now, Palmyra's split with Rome officially happened in 272, when Zenobia announced Palmyra's independence from the Roman Empire. We know this because Palmyra in coins from 272 onwards removed all references to the Roman Empire and instead referred to Zenobia, and also Vallabathus, her son, with imperial titles, August and Augusta. It seemed that until then, she had attempted to broker a deal that would put her in an equal position with Rome, sharing power as the ruler of her half of the empire. However, this all broke down when Aurelian, Quintillus's successor, refused to accept any offers that Zenobia made and started to make plans to mobilize against her. This, in fact, may have been what prompted her to declare independence and claim imperial titles so as to widen the gap between Palmyra and Rome and to motivate people to pick sides and, of course, all going well, pick her side rather than the uh, potentially dysfunctional Roman empire in any case aurelian is having absolutely none of it he has had it up to the back teeth with uh, zenobia's uh, rebellion and uh, and and you know open uh Defiance of Roman rule, because uh, since taking the imperial throne, he's been busy sorting out the Goths and the other barbarians, and he's done a bloody excellent job at stitching the failing Roman Empire back together. I'll tell you this: now, in two seventy two, he's finally carved out the time that he needs to take care of Palmyra, and so he musters his troops to head out east. He crosses the Bosporus in uh, in modern day Turkey in in April two seventy two, and he marches through Asia Minor, where he encounters very little resistance. In fact, there is one city that does try to hold out against the Romans, and uh, after they're defeated. Aurelian's advisors beg him not to put the city to the fire and the sword. They say, no, look, listen, spare them. You know, they were conquered themselves. Let them go. Be merciful in this case and, and it'll pay dividends. And, and the matter of fact is it did. Uh, after other cities and towns heard of the fact that Aurelian was a merciful leader, they all surrendered a lot faster than they would have otherwise. And so his uh, progress was hastened enormously towards Palmyra by the fact that he had spared this city that was uh, was initially, uh, you know, attempting to hold out Against him, so good job there, Aurelian. You certainly, uh, you certainly made it a bit of an easier job for yourself. Anyway, as a result of this, uh, he he manages to make it to the to the doors of Palmyra, the Palmyran Empire, without too much difficulty. And in addition to this, he's also recaptured Alexandria by sending a, a contingent of troops down down to Egypt to retake it. So Egypt has fallen to the Romans once again uh, because Zenobia has actually withdrawn most of her troops back to Palmyra in the face of the oncoming Roman invasion. Anyway. Aurelian doesn't have too much uh, too many issues and marching all the way into Palmyra towards the city of Antioch. About forty kilometers away from Antioch, he meets the 70,000 strong Palmyran army, once again led by Zabdas. But this time, poor old Zabdas' luck runs out and he is defeated in the Battle of Ime. He flees along with Zenobia to the city of Emesa. In Emesa, however, Zenobia makes a very interesting and, and quite funny decision. She doesn't want people to know that they've lost the Battle of Ime, and as a result, what she does she starts Talk, just lies essentially and start saying that Romans have been wrecked and get this, that they'd captured Aurelian. Now obviously people wanted to, you know, some evidence that this had happened. So what she did, she got Zabdash. She gets Zabdash, she says, Listen here, mate, what I want you to do, go out there and find for me someone who looks a little bit like Aurelian, and I'll and I'll parade him through the town of Emesa to prove that we've captured him. Zabdash goes, mate, bloody love this plan don't worry about it, you know, I'll be back in two shakes of a a lamb's tail, don't even worry about it. And he comes back with his bloke, who again, looks a little bit like Aurelian, and they parade him up and down Emesa as a prisoner, you know, saying, look at this, we got the Roman Emperor, don't even worry about it. Now, this didn't actually work out all that well, because the very next day, the real Aurelian arrived in Emesa, so the sort of, the illusion was kind of shattered there. And uh, as a result, now, the Battle of Emesa is fought between the Palmarines and the Romans. And uh, to begin with, it's looking pretty good for the Palmarines. Once again, the army is absolutely crushing it. Their heavy cavalry are slaughtering Romans left, right, and centre. But then disaster. These, uh, these, these uh, horsemen, they get cocky and they start to chase down uh, these fleeing Roman troops. And this leads them right into the bulk of the Roman infantry, where they are all cut down mercilessly and killed. And after this defeat, Zenobia is forced to retreat further. Just think of that. If the army had maintained their discipline, they may have won the Battle of Emesa, and things would have taken a very different turn. But as it is, the hubris of these horsemen was uh, something of a death knell for the Palmyrene Empire, as we will will shortly discover. So, Zenobia retreats, as I say, this time all the way back to the city of Palmyra itself. And unfortunately for her, due to the defeat at Amasa and the speed at which she had to run away, she had to leave all of her bloody cash behind. The imperial treasury is no more and has now fallen into the hands of the Romans. In Palmyra, Aurelian laid siege to the city and cuts off its supply lines very quickly indeed. However... Zenobia still reckons that she's in with a good shot here, given she had a huge number of archers inside the walls, and also due to the fact that the Romans were stuck out in a stinking bloody hot desert. When Aurelian demanded her surrender, apparently she returned, returned the message by saying this, You demand my surrender as though you were not aware that Cleopatra preferred to die a queen rather than remain alive, however high her rank. So bloody good on her for telling Aurelio, Aurelian what's what, although it didn't do her any good in the long run, but still full credit to her for, for at least having getting in there and having a crack, because after this, Aurelian only intensified his attacks on the city, and as a result, Zenobia was once again forced to flee. She attempted to flee uh, the city, sneaking out a back door and, and, and riding away at top speed towards the, uh, the Euphrates. But Aurelian, he got wind of what she was up to, and he gave chase, sent out a contingent of soldiers to capture her, and capture her they did. She was captured by the Romans before she could get across the Euphrates, and the city of Palmyra Palmyra fell, and the Palmyrene Empire was no more. Now... Things get pretty interesting after uh, Zenobia was captured because there are hugely conflicting tales on what happened next. Things at the beginning of this story and at the end of this story are kind of all over the place. All the stuff that is in the middle, all of the conquest and the expansion, the Empire building, we've got a generally pretty accurate idea of how things went there. But as we, as we wrap up the story of Queen Zenobia, things get a little the, the waters get a little muddy once again here. She was probably sent to a mesa to stand trial. This, That much seems likely to be true. But uh, a lot of what was written about Zenobia at this stage was written by heavily biased Romans. There's stories of her cowardly capitulation at the trial, blaming her advisors and her people for her failures. But this was probably just Roman propaganda to set the Palmyrene people against her. And, and, and historians aren't particularly convinced by these accounts. After this, however, things aren't much clearer. Some sources say that she died while being taken to Rome as a, as a prisoner, but some, some say that she got there alive and well, so we, we're not sure about that. But most seem to indicate that she she was taken to Rome uh, by Aurelian during his victory parades, during his triumphs at this time in 274. And, uh, well, by the way, Aurelian, he came back to an absolute hero as well. He's there on, on the streets handing out bread to the Roman citizens, people absolutely loving it, you know, getting around him, bloody selfies all over the place on the red carpet, having a great time. Um, and uh, and Zenobia f- sort of figures into this a- a- as a sort of as a prize, almost as you know, as 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 someone who's been who's paraded around the town, uh, you know, as a, as a uh, as a humiliated, defeated leader. Now, this can't have been a uh, a particularly nice way to end your career as an empress, I would say. But I will say, I will mention this. One of the one of the sources indicates that. Uh, Uh, that Zenobia was led around the city, paraded around the city in golden chains. So again, while it can't have been too much fun to be shown off like this, at least she was doing it in in a certain amount of style. Anyway, after this, some contemporary historians claim that she was executed, that she was beheaded, while some claim that she was granted a villa by Aurelian and remarried a Roman noble. Honestly, we'll probably never know what truly happened, but we definitely know this. In just a few short years, Zenobia built an empire to rival Rome itself, which is no small feat, and today she's a national hero in Syria, appearing on Syrian banknotes, and queens such as Catherine the Great, centuries later, considered Zenobia to be a role model. So any way you slice it, Zenobia did a cracking job of carving out her own corner of history, forging an empire that burnt hot, and burnt bright, and burnt, unfortunately for her, all too quickly. But that's it that's all she wrote today sports fans that is the story of queen Zenobia of palmyra and a cracking one it is too i really i mean this what a woman she was to be able to build an empire like this and go up against Rome And you know even if you you know what it's not about the it's not about the destination it doesn't matter that she lost in the end it's about the journey so good on her for getting it done back then anyway that's that for this week wrapping things up with a normal boring housekeeping announcements half us is the website past episodes and a contact form there if you want to get in touch with the show you can send in ideas for episodes or you can Asked me to send you some stickers. Still got plenty of them to send off to you. So uh, half or half history at gmail.com. Um, on Twitter, at half without an O. Uh, wouldn't fit. Very annoying if you, uh, you want to get in touch there. Uh, otherwise, that is just about that. Thanks so much to everyone who is supporting me on Patreon. I still am just... Humbled and flattered by the the fact that people are chucking money at me for for doing this silly podcast, and uh, even if you're not, thanks so much for tuning in. I, you know, there's not really too many ways to say this without sounding like a bit of a bit of a deal, but. Uh I really do want to say thank you. I, you know, I started this podcast more as just a little personal passion project and uh, it really is flattering to know that uh, you know so many people around the world are listening to it and 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 seem to get so much enjoyment out of it. I mean, if you, you know, if you're listening to it and you don't get enjoyment out of it, well, thanks for boosting my numbers, I guess, I guess, but you know, good on you anyway for for getting stuck in and uh, and filling your filling your head full of knowledge. Anyway, that is that going to wrap things up here again with a question posed on reddit uh we've talked a little bit about the roman empire and we've talked about the fact that it was on the brink of collapse at one point point. and uh reddit user reddit historian quit bsing has a great question in that vein how did rome fall if it was already on the ground was it in the sky in ancient times